Hey, Sister Brunch listeners, before we get into this conversation with the fabulous Deshauna Spencer, we wanted to let you know that this episode contains references to homicide and violence against black men and women. This topic occurs briefly within the first 10 minutes of our conversation. Thank you all so much for listening to Sister Brunch, and here we go. Welcome back to Sister Brunch, the podcast about Black women and gender expansive people thriving in entertainment and media. And now we are in our fourth season, you all. This season, you can leave us a voicemail too. You can call us at 424-587-4870 and we might just play your question in a future episode or feature your question on our Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. I am Fanchon Cox and today's guest is the amazing Deshauna Spencer. She's the founder and CEO of Quelly TV, a streaming platform dedicated to curating and celebrating Black culture on a global scale. Before starting Quelly TV in 2015, she was a journalist and radio host on Washington, D.C.'s 89.3 FM, WPFW, where she discussed social justice issues impacting people of color. She's a social entrepreneur who is very well on her way to breaking barriers in the most unconventional way. Welcome to Shauna Spencer. Thanks for having me. Excited <laughs> to be here. Yes, yes. I feel like I got to see you twice in a month or something. Yeah, twice in one <laughs> month. I feel very lucky. We met at the um, Black Media Symposium at Boston right. University. Um, but I knew about your work already. I was already following Quelly TV. I didn't have a subscription yet, but I do now. Yay, <laughs> so, <laughs> so excited. Yes. Um, <laughs> So we always like to start the show by asking our guests, because we really want to kind of inspire our listeners to know that this is a path that they can take and, you know, it takes hard work. But so we always like to ask you to go back to the beginning as far back as you would like to go back um, that actually eventually led to you running this streaming platform. Wow. How far do you want to go? <laughs> what day were you born? <laughs> no, how far, I was born by you a would... river. And then so it's interesting because as a kid, I mean, streaming didn't exist. So a lot of people say, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? I mean, for me, I knew I wanted to be a storyteller. At least I knew that much. How I would be a storyteller, I didn't know. So I'm from Memphis, Tennessee working class parents. I was the kid that was, I lived like in the inner city community in Memphis. We were actually bused, my brother and I were bused from mm. our inner city. It was kind of like a lottery type of deal where there was like a quote unquote better school in a better part of town in Memphis. And we won like this lottery. Mm. And so my brother and I were bused to um, another school outside of our community. And we were one of few black kids at this school at, at this particular school, I really began to have a love for reading and writing. I mean, so much so that my parents, that was like our field trip, you know, we were working class, so we didn't, I didn't go on vacations, but books were my way of visiting parts of the world. And mm. I didn't go to the little kid section of, of the library. I was in the adult section and I was reading 
very adult books. Don't ask me what I was reading because I forgot them now. But you know, <laughs> I love reading these. I wanted a challenge, and mm. and I was pretty much the most read student every year. We used to have like a reading kind, like a contest, how many words you can read, yes. like a month. I won every like every year. I was the most read, like in, in my class. And by the time I was probably like in the fifth or sixth grade, I kind of decided I want to be a novelist at that time. Mm. But I also was an avid writer. So I used to write short stories all the time. Even to this day, I still have copies of the short stories. I would create character stories and character mm. arcs. I mean, I would, you know, write all these scenes. I mean, I, I loved it. I love writing dialogue um, as a little kid. And, but because I grew up working class, I mean, it wasn't like my parents were like, well, let's try to publish put this. In, it, right. Put you in classes even like they just don't know how to direct you because it, they haven't been exposed. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't blame them at all. I mean, like they didn't know, they didn't think right. a child could be a published author or anything, but the most of was pretty good. I used to enter into, you know, contests in school. I mean, I, I thought I was a really great writer. It wasn't until I would say like middle school where it transitioned from novelist to maybe journalism. I think I mentioned like during uh, during a speaking engagement at Boston, we were both at. I used to watch Meet the Press, you know, every morning before church. You know, most <laughs> most ten year olds don't watch Meet the Press, but I love you know watching it. It was you know very fascinating to me. I was an avid reader again, you know, but beyond like novels and books, but also magazines and so. I used to read Ebony and Jill all the time. I learned about Emmett Till reading Jet Magazine in, on my way to church one Sunday. And so when I got to high school, I was on the yearbook staff and one of my, um, the, 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 the professor or teacher suggested like, have you really thought about journalism? And so when I went to college, I mean, I, I wanted to be, I really wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to tell people stories in a way that maybe other people couldn't. Um, I also had thought about being an entrepreneur as someone who used to be an avid reader of, you know, teen magazines. I wanted to, it's like, maybe there could be a teen magazine for black girls, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I was working in daily news. My first job was actually working for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I was an, an originally an obit writer. And then I became like a general summer reporter. I was kind of going out, you know, doing beat stuff. I had my first, you know, front page story on election night when uh, my senior year I was really excited mm. even my you know professors were really excited about that too when I graduated that's when I was working at the Oakland Tribune um I was pretty much a cop reporter and that's where uh, I, I talked about my job was pretty much writing about young black men and some women getting murdered like that was pretty much right. all I did I knew the coroner I knew the police chief I knew them way too well um I was um, really, I was so good at my job that the, I think it was Harry, lead cop reporter, he was going to retire and they were going to make me lead cop reporter at like 22, 23. Wow. And I remember touring up the the, um, the main police station. I met some police officers. I had some meetings with the police chief. They trusted me to tell their stories, which is also very problematic, right? <laughs> As well, you know, because you want to be, you want to tell authentic stories. You don't want to like, well, you know, we're going to tell the side of the police, you know, correctly all the time. If they did something incorrectly, they need to be called out on right, it. Right. And so they had me meet with the police chief, I guess, to, to vet me to see if I would tell <laughs> the stories maybe in the way that they wanted. <laughs> right. And I, and, and, but it really hit home. Like I said, when 
I had that one interview where it was, it was like, I suppose like a double, a double homicide, um, boyfriend and girlfriend were supposed to be murdered. Their child was in the backseat of the car. Mm. And I, Harry is like, Deshauna, there's this double homicide. Both of the parents passed away. The baby survived. You need to talk to the, the mother of the daughter who was in the passenger side. And that was when I made that phone call. And like, I'm Deshauna. I'm so sorry for your loss. And the mother was hysterical, like, sorry for your loss. You're always the first one to know. And she start, starts crying, like crying so hard, like mm. hysterically crying. And I'm like trying not to cry. And I'm like, I'm, let me double check with my editor. I'm so sorry. And I go to my editor, like huffing and puffing, like, wait a minute, you told me that she passed away. I think I'm the one who actually, you know, told her that her child has mm. passed. Mm. And so um, mm. it was very upsetting for me to, to have to, you know, be the person to do that. And then when I went back to my editor, that's when... Um, that's when I found out that, you know, actually, no, she, she really did survive and you need to go back into that story again. Oh my goodness. And so that was the part that really, that's the part that really hurt, you know, because I'm like, well, I'm happy she was alive. Right. I mean, right, I'm, I was happy right. she was alive. But here but, you had been in a position to, to make things more traumatic for this family because you were doing your job and that's what the job entailed. Exactly. And Honestly, if you're if you're a, a cop reporter, I mean that's pretty much what you do. You're interviewing people at the the worst moments of their lives, right. and it's not like they they have time to mourn. They have time to think about what happened. It was very raw. I mean, her, her child was still in ICU. Her child was still alive, and they were just in in route back home to grab some stuff to spend a night with her. And there she is, you know. Um, she, you know. So I I didn't want to do that, like. I just felt like this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, um, as a journalist. And I was trying to figure out like, what can I do? Like what type of job can I do as a writer? Like how can I tell these stories differently in a way that I'm not causing black trauma? Like I'm, I'm the cause of it. I mean, I tried to do the best I could. I would try to, you know, it was your job and, and yeah, and, and, and we need, we need us in those positions, those, you know, black and brown people, but also folks with empathy in those positions because it continues, right. That kind of role continues. But at the same time, you knew you were like, I can't keep doing this. Right, and right. You, and you pivoted into bringing joy to so many people through Quelly TV. Like that, that's the piece that I think so, mo- so many of us feel stuck in something that we don't like to do. But you were literally like, this thing that I'm going to turn this, you know, this job that I'm not loving, but the skills that I'm learning. And you're a filmmaker, you're a documentarian. And you were like, let me figure out how to make sure people can... I have access, see themselves, see a broader story than the stories that you were limited in telling as a journalist, right? Right. And it, it was a pretty, a pretty long journey, you know, to, to even to even get there because like once I decided that I didn't want to be a journalist, um, or at least in that capacity, like I ended up working for like a, a weekly weekly paper, being a feature writer, very, very soft stuff. And then um, after that, um, I ended up moving to DC area and I was 24 years old. And that's where I knew that I wanted, I was trying to figure out like, how can I learn how to manage something? Because mm-hmm. when you're a journalist, you just write, you, you don't really know how to manage a team. You don't know how to manage, 
you know, budget. You don't know how to do any of that stuff. Right. And so I ended up taking this job and they're working there for many, way longer than I wanted to work as a, a communications manager and then a director of communications for this organization for, well, it was a non-for-profit organization. I was the first black manager at this job. The CEO and I did not get along at all. I mean, he was kind of low-key, like racist a bit. Sometimes he would say things that are a little bit out of line. Mm. And I was always to check him on it. And so it was really, and someone who's 24 starting out in your career, having to check people, you know, was, it was very hard and it yeah. was very difficult, but I knew I had to stay the course because I learned so much there. I learned how to manage a team. I learned how to how to manage a budget, having a budget and, and having writers and having learning social media, um, learning, you know, videography. Like mm-hmm. the one good thing about this job was they, they gave you money each year to learn things. And so wow. I, I took classes on videography and I took a, a documentary class. I took a class on producing for, for, for film. Like I, I, all this stuff was, you know, under this company, I learned so much there. It, was, it allowed me to do my first documentary with the skills that I learned yes. uh, with the funding that they gave me, you know, to, to, to learn and grow. And I feel like it was a really great experience, even though there were so many other rough, par- rough patches of that company, but that was the last company I ever worked for. I never worked for anyone else after that, oh after that company. <laughs> yeah. I've only you took, like, you took the skills, you got those <laughs> skills, you kind of took what you needed out of that company and, and now are working for yourself. Yeah, I am. I mean, it's it's a journey. I always tell people that, you know, who are interested in entrepreneurship, like it's not for the faint of heart, like it's a lot of work, it's, it's super stressful. But if you're passionate about what you're doing, and if you're not looking about, okay, it's about to check day one, it's really more about the mission, the money will come, the customers will come, all that will come if, you know, you're in it for the right reason. And so it's been a very bumpy road to get here, but, you know, we're, we're still here. <laughs> Amazing. This is Sister Brunch, the podcast by and about Black women and gender expansive people thriving in entertainment and media. Stay tuned for more of our conversation with our guest and social impact executive, Deshauna Spencer. And also while you're here, go ahead and do us the favor. Um, Even if you just like the show and maybe you don't even really, really love it, still, you could give us, you know, like four stars. We'll take all five stars as well. Leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and share the podcast too with your friends and family. We're back and ready to chat more with Deshauna Spencer. I want to dig into a little more now, specifically on Quelly TV, because um, I'd love you to share, first of all, why you named it Quelly TV and um, and what what can we see on Quelly TV? And um, and then maybe a little bit of the technical, like how you understood even how to create a, a streaming platform. So that's a lot of questions. Um, I think but, I remember yeah. it. <laughs> okay, good. So Quilly TV, what well, Quilly means truth in Swahili. Yes. And when I was coming up with the concept, so when I was thinking about starting a streaming service, before I started this company, I actually had an online magazine. Like I actually thought that would be my legacy. It was called Empower. And that's why my radio show on uh, WPFW was called Empower Hour. It was an extension of my online magazine. But one day, actually it was not long after I, I had, I had done my, or I started working on my documentary. 
I had this idea for a streaming service just, just came to me while I, like flipping through cable. I just didn't see anything I wanted to see. I didn't see myself represented. I wanted to see more documentaries. I wanted, I wanted to see more Black history. I wanted to see more indie, independent films. Besides having to travel somewhere to a film festival, I wanted to see it right. you know, in my home. And I was like, okay, what would I name this company? And everything that I learned you know, about being a former journalist and understanding the, the concept of authentic storytelling and how storytelling really impacts implicit bias and so many things, I started f- trying to figure out okay, what does truth mean in other languages? And I ended up choosing Swahili mainly because of Kwanzaa and most, most Americans know Swahili because of Kwanzaa. <laughs> and that's the main reason why I chose the language Swahili. But I knew I wanted it to be truth. Like I knew I wanted to tell authentic stories. I just don't want to be called truth TV. I wanted it to have a ring to it. Quilly TV has a ring to it. And so the type of content that we have, we have currently over 600 titles representing the entire African diaspora. So content from here, you know, like North America, Mm -hmm. Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, and Australia, all black stories. We're everywhere. And we really want to be the platform that really showcases the diversity of the Black experience. For a lot of us, we can't travel to, to other parts of the world. Through our platform, you can, just like as a kid, when I was reading books, I could travel somewhere. I could, You can travel to Venezuela and see what it's like to be Afro-Venezuelan or Afro-Caribbean, whatever. You can, you can see that through the platform. What is it like in, to be in Ghana or, or in Tanzania? What is life like? in um you know in Brixton in the UK like like those those are the type of things that we really offer at Clay TV that you really can't see on other platforms. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important to be able to do that. And also even just you know I talk about it from a global perspective, but even for here in the US, we want to show a different side to the black experience. I think a lot of times for traditional media, a lot of the stories tend to be one-sided mm-hmm. about what it means to be black. And we really want to, a lot, and it's a lot of times in trauma, you know, so a woman scorned or her husband did this or he's in prison, you know, and not to say we don't have those types of stories about the realities of, of some of the injustices that's happening in America, mm-hmm. but we also want to celebrate yes. the best of our culture in, in a, you know, and I think that's why, you know, we do, that's why we do is what we do is so important. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the type of content that we have. As far as like our top titles or top type of genres, I always tell people, you know, believe it or not, documentaries are like the top. People love documentaries on the platform. They're really into the history, animation. Sci-fi is also a, a really big yes. one. And children's programming. So we really, you know, and not to say other platforms don't focus on those, but I would say other platforms that may focus on Black experience may tend to towards from rom-coms traditionally or the maybe more soap opera-y type mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. stories like very very traumatic and trauma and drama you know type yep. of stories if there are documentaries sometimes they tend to focus on like I hate to say big and big and Tupac but you'd be surprised how often I'm pitched about big and Tupac wow okay <laughs> I believe me like I love the music and I you know but yeah. I'm like, how many more ducks can we do about, you know, right. <laughs> about right. so, you know, we really want to tell unsung heroes, you know, we want to really showcase those on our platform. 
I love it. And and I think that that's what you do is to show us all the possibilities, because I think you're right. Uh, you know, there there's space for all of us. All kinds of stories should be told. But also, if we keep telling the same kinds of stories over and over again, it's just like erasing us. Right. Because then still young people don't know that the story, you know, a different kind of story that they may have. They don't know that they have a place where they could share that that story. How did you have the technical understanding? So you talked about like being the communications manager and and knowing having kind of the the storytelling skills where you could you know how to choose a, a good story. But I'd be like, what streaming service? Like, well, do I get a developer? Like, how did you how did you do that part? That was ignorance is bliss. Sometimes they say <laughs> I didn't know the first thing about starting streaming service when I had my online magazine. There were so many resources for starting online magazines. I mean, even there was a book called How to Start an Online Magazine for Dummies. Like, there literally is a book called that. <laughs> yeah. There is no How to Start a Streaming Service for Dummies. Like, right. that book does not exist. Yeah. Now, Reed Hastings, he's not, there is no book. He doesn't want competition and right. he's not, you know, readily trying to give it out. At the time, there weren't many streaming services. It was pretty much mostly, I would say Netflix, Hulu, HBO was, you know, trying to get a few things off the ground. Mm. I think it was HBO Go at the time, it wasn't HBO Max. Right. And so I didn't really know how to get started. The the best I could do was um, because of my online magazine, one of my um, one of my board members was a full stack developer because I wanted to have a well-rounded group of people who were on my board. And I asked once they have this idea for this platform and I don't really know what to do. Like I started my online magazine with a very, very, you know, beefed up WordPress site. You can't, you can't have a streaming service on WordPress. Like it's not going to work out. Right. The video, one video alone, if you're trying yeah. to upload a video on WordPress, <laughs> right. the one video, that's it. And so I was like, what, I don't even know where to get started. I started doing some research and that's when I learned about what it takes to build like a, a startup, like a, a, like a tech streaming service. Like, I didn't know what AWS was, you know, Amazon Web Services. Ooh, okay, yeah, I do. I'm proud to say I do know that. I think that's because we have to hold our our podcast content. On okay, yeah. okay. I, I didn't know. Started, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I I started to do research. I didn't know about AWS, and I learned that Netflix, you know, they use AWS for something called CloudFront, and so it's very technical. But this is something I learned. So the reason that but when Netflix first started, the issues of their buffering was that they, didn't, they weren't using a type of technology that allowed people to stream anywhere in the world. So mm-hmm. let's say if, if, if your company is based in like L.A. and your servers are in L.A., the people who are, you know, within their range are going to have the best, you know, streaming experience. If someone is streaming from New York, they're gonna, it's going to buffer more because the server is further away. Okay. With CloudFront, which I learned, you know, by doing my research, CloudFront is what uh, Amazon uses to allow platforms, even like an Uber, or whatever, who to be able to use the closest server oh, to where people okay. live. To and where so, the individual that's so like each of your subscribers are watching from something that's close to their to exactly, where they live. Oh, exactly. Okay. And people didn't realize this. So when I would talk to the other developers, like, I want to put your streaming service. We have a bunch of servers. I was like, well, you know, AWS, well, we're, we're probably cheaper. I'm like, no, because I was always trying to explain to people, like, your server's in Northern Virginia. If someone wants to watch this in Nigeria, 
they won't be able to. Like, right. it's talk about buffering in New York. Nigeria <laughs> is going to be like, like just next year you'll be able to watch this press, <laughs> you know, press play now and come back in a year. Right? Exactly, exactly. Right. And these are things I had to learn. I didn't know anything about uh, MVP, a minimal viable product, and. I, when I had this idea for Clear TV, I, had, I wanted to build this big, you know, the whole shebang and make it amazing. And that's when the um, the full sector rebel on my, uh, he was on my board, it's like, no, you built the MVP, you don't want to build. And I was pushing back a bit. He was like, no, you built the MVP, you don't want to build the best product, you want to build enough just for people to like it because it may change. You may see that you built it one way and you're seeing customers are liking it another way and you spend all this money to build some mm-hmm. stuff that maybe people don't want. So you build the minimal product first and then expand it from there based off of user feedback and, and usability and surveys and stuff like that. So I took y'all, his advice. Y'all, y'all, we are getting a business lesson. <laughs> I love this entrepreneurial advice today. Wow, okay. Even, by the way, I have to say, even the fact that you had a board like that. That's the kind of thing that I think we don't always think about as we're creating a business, right? Is like, you do need support mm-hmm. and a board is a perfect way to do that. And it, in fact, I'll admit, I haven't thought about that for my company yet. And I'm like, right, a board that makes so much sense. And then you have people on, on your board that, that understand the different things that you need in order for the company to run. Exactly. Amazing. And so, and, and it was, and he was really, really helpful. He he connected me with a, another developer because he said like he couldn't really do it, but he knew someone who was more well well versed in sort of developing mm-hmm. bigger projects. And I hired this guy. I ended up winning a grant. It was twenty thousand dollars through Unity Journalists. Yes, I'm not sure if people remember Unity Journalists, but it was all the other organizations combined: NABJ, NAHJ, NAAJ, all you know came together for four years, and so. Unity created a, a fund because for drones of color, we're typically the last one hired, first one fired. Mm-hmm. And this was an opportunity for us to be able to create our own media companies. And so they gave out two $20,000 grants. They gave one to NABJ um, um, founder, which is myself, and one for NAHJ, Hispanic Association. And he won $20,000 as well. And I pretty much gave all that money to the developer mm-hmm. to, to yeah. build yeah. the MVP. It was crazy though. He skipped out, like he ended up moving to Colorado and he didn't finish the, he didn't no. finish our beta. No, he finished about 80 to 90% of it. And I ended up just releasing it because it was interesting because I wasn't sure what to do because I, I didn't have any more money. But I ended up reading um, um, the founder of, co-founder of LinkedIn. I ended up reading a quote. I was doing some research one day and it said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you, you started too late. And so I was super embarrassed by the first version. And so that's the reason why I went ahead on and decided to release it, even though it wasn't, it was horrible. It could, it could play movies. It can take people's money. Like it was, that was it. If people need to research their passwords, I had to do it, you know, which was. And how many subscribers did you have at that point? We had, you know, enough early that it on was going to be hard. To, to go exactly. Through. And we had a couple of hundred, you know, I would wow. say. Day on day one, we were getting subscribers. It was shocking to me. It was exciting. You know, yes. I would go online and refresh, and people were signing up every single day. And I, I just couldn't believe it that people were, you know, into it. Not that I mean, I knew people would be into it, but you build something, you don't know how people will, will right. react to it. Right. 
and those are tech side things. Also, even getting the content was it was less challenging, but still somewhat challenging because people there weren't any other there weren't a lot of streaming services around. People were like, "Who are you?" Actually, you right, you know, right? Yeah, you you were one of the only people running your own one for Black folks. Well, you still right. are the only one running one for Black folks, but. At that time, I mean, right, we have to think about how much has changed since you got started. But at that time, right, like even just you convincing people to take you seriously. Right. You know, and then, and oh, I love that quote. I think our listeners had no idea that we're getting a How I Built This Black Woman <laughs> version today. It's the Sister Brunch version of How I Built This. I, this is a, I'm so glad to hear that piece of it because I think that's where we get intimidated, right? Is we think, you know, well, I don't know how to do that piece of it, so I'm just not going to do it. But you were like, no, I'm going to I'm going to learn. Hey, it's Fanshin Cox and you're listening to Sister Brunch. We'll be right back. And during this quick break, if you haven't done this already, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Sister Brunch. And we're also on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. This is Deshauna Spencer and you're listening to Sister Brunch. You talked about that 20 grand. Are you comfortable talking about what your salary looks like now or what your range is? Like, how do you survive on this? Um, What did it take to get you kind of the financials, wherever you're comfortable to talk about the financials? And also, obviously, this will change. So this will warn everybody this won't be entirely evergreen, but talk about what it costs to subscribe to the channel and what that means for you in terms of your survival and and comfort and luxury, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Good question. So um, we, it's been interesting. This journey is really interesting as far as like raising money. I always tell people I I had no idea the disparities that black women face when trying to raise money. I'm not sure if I mentioned it at Boston university, but typically when I go to speaking engagements, I always ask the audience to guess what percentage do you think Black women receive in investment dollars? Zero to 100%. And it's always, did I mention that? During no, the, I, don't, I don't think so. Do you, what do you think the number is okay. between like, so I think like, I forgot, like maybe a billion dollars is allocated every year to startup founders. Okay. What percentage do you think black goes to get. Black women? Even like women in general, women in general and then Black women. I'm really okay. curious in your thoughts. So that's the thing. I mean, white women, I would say maybe they're up there like, 30 percent okay black women i mean i hope it's somewhere around 15 i mean obviously i hope it's a lot more but 15 half of that no i'm gonna be sad uh, when you tell me you gotta what be it. really i mean usually people are mouths like are wide open so for white women is 2.3 percent what it's all what oh my goodness Right. Okay. So women now make up I, half I'm the population. I'm afraid to know. <laughs> white women. So, you know, white women not getting any money. You know, black women getting scrapped. Definitely so. not. So when I started the company, it was 2 point, you know, I'm sorry, it, for, for black women, it was 0.2% when I started the company. What? Now it's about 0.6%. So not even a full 1%. 
um, in or no, it's zero point zero point three three or something like that. Okay. Not zero. It's like zero point three three, and for Black people as a whole, it's like one percent. So um, it's wow. really really bad. Now that goes to show you. So basically, white men get all the money. It's not yep. even not and not even the white women. And white women aren't getting the money either. Like white women are only getting two point three percent. Wow. I didn't know that going in. I had no idea oh, that it would be that difficult to raise money. It's been extremely hard to raise money. I know we would probably be much further ahead if we would have been able to raise money. When I started the company, I really assumed that I, I was on going to Stanford's um, YouTube channel and watching pitch competitions and practicing and mm. and learning about the you know the tech you know industry ecosystem. And if you get customers, you know, and you're starting to see growth, you you get money. And it would streaming was so early at the time I thought it would be a shoe in. We were kind of very early on to the game, but people didn't want to invest in black media and they were like, Well, Netflix can just do what you do. Mm. Or maybe not, or maybe we can be, you know, our own thing. You know, it was very difficult. I was very depressed the first couple of years of starting a company because we were running out of money and our our beta was in such disarray that we started to lose customers because People were just frustrated with the site. People were like, because mm. I had to explain to people what a beta was. I mean, black people didn't know what a beta was. And right. then when I told them, they were excited. We would get these emails like, hey, I found this wrong. I found that wrong. They felt they were being a part of our process to make yes. it better. Yes. But two years go by and, and you know. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? It wasn't until it was. December 2016, I was watching a video of Ava DuVernay and she was speaking at NYU and I was probably crying or something, you know, <laughs> depressed. And she was talking about the early days where she was trying to make her first film. And she was mentioning how she would go to these events. I mean, she you know, was in the industry, but, you know, as a publicist and marketing, not really, right. you know, and, and, and on the other side of things. And she would, she mentioned how she would try to meet with people or, you know, like the thing you go to events and you're thinking that you will make a connection and kind of like that, you know, desperation thing. She talked about how she used to kind of exude desperation mm. and, uh, and she really talked about how when she goes to events, she sees desperation of the people and she knows because she was that person at one point yep. being in DC, same thing, like it being in LA you know, you meet people who they go to events, they go to, they go to network, hoping that they meet that one person mm -hmm. that's going to change their lives. Or you get that one check, you get that one opportunity. Those things do happen, right? You you meet Snoop Dogg and he tweets about you and your, yeah. the rest is history. Not to say it doesn't happen for the most part. It doesn't happen like that for most people. Not and... when we're talking the percentages that you just shared. Like it definitely doesn't happen for <laughs> us, right? No, not, not for black women, not right. at all. And so... She said that she stopped sort of doing that and tried to figure out, like, how can I just make this happen? And that's when she funded, I think, her first film through her credit cards. Mm -hmm. And she just got her friends. You know, she basically decided to network, you know, parallel, parallel networking, yes, you yes. know, and people that she knew who right. would, you know, and they filmed it in a couple of days. And, you know, and the rest is history. Right. I'm sure there were lots of, you know, things happening, ups and downs. But. She took it. She took miles into her, into her own hands, yes. and I went to the next year trying to figure out how can I take matters into my own hands. I do not want a Silicon Valley bro mm -hmm. to dictate whether or not I become successful because he did not write me a check, yes. and so 
in 2017, I started working on pitch competitions. My first pitch competition was actually February of 2017. It was a Harvard Business School. I found it about the pitch competition two to four. It was supposed to happen. I only had a couple of hundred dollars left in my business account. We were running on fumes. I had just enough money just to fly to, to Boston. One of my friends was like an RA at a small college in Boston. I stayed with her. I stayed in the dorm room illegally. Technically, I wasn't supposed to be there, but I couldn't afford to be. Yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't afford like a hotel, yeah. and and I stayed with her and used my last dime. And I just practiced, practiced, practiced that pitch. I was so nervous, and you know, it's interesting how things work with you know with business. How you know, I was up and down. I was. I had just applied for another opportunity. And I remember I sat down and I was just checking my phone because people were pitching before me. They didn't really tell us what order we were going to be in. They just would call your name. And so I was just kind of sitting there waiting for my turn. And I remember just checking my email really quickly and an opportunity the email, you know, anyone who's in, in industry, like you get the email, you know, if, if you're applying for something, if the first line is an update on your application, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> you didn't get it. <laughs> right. Right. It's not congratulations. It's exactly. an update. And you're like, yeah. Oh, oh, well. <laughs> so I saw the emails, like an update on your application. Thank you so much. Oh, but, but, oh, and then literally once I like closed the email, I heard my name up next to Sean O'Spencer and Coley oh, TV. No. <laughs> in those moments in your life, right, you, you get a rejection, you just get a rejection, something you wanted, and then you're right, another opportunity is facing you, you know, head on. What do you do? Do you, like, go up there and, like, oh, sorry, guys, you know, or do you, like, say, you know what, I missed the opportunity, let me rock this one because this is an opportunity for me. And I won a, the, the pitch competition. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I won every pitch competition that year, actually. I yes. didn't pitch. I've only, every company, I've only got yeah, second place like maybe once or something, but I've, I, in all the years I pitched, but I always win. I, go I, I go to win. I go to win. So I'm really, I'm really anal about, you know, about putting my life in my own hands. I think as, yes. as black women in particular, no one's coming or even black, just black people in general. Cause my husband and I are talking about this, like no one's coming to save us. No. And no. we have to figure out how can we as a community build ourselves up, you know, without having to rely upon um, outside dollars. Yep. It's interesting because, you know, we haven't really been, you know, I guess stamp of approval by, you know, Hollywood, you know, people see me as a nobody in the industry and, uh, and you know, I, I try to work. It's okay. I, I try not to let that get to me. I've had lots of mm -hmm. people come and go who, you know, claim they're going to do this and do that. Right. And um, it just doesn't work out. And I just learned that I'm, I'm not going to let that bother me. I know what my mission is. And until otherwise, I, I you know, something else, something happens that see that shows me I need to be in a different direction. I'll keep doing this. So the way I always think of it is you let them come to you and that I'm confident. Like it's, it's not about, Oh, if, as long as, you know, just do this thing. Cause I, I talk to people pitching their projects, et cetera, all the time or organizations, initiatives. And they're like, well, Sundance didn't let us in. And I'm like, well, bump Sundance, like right. make it so that Sundance comes to you the mm -hmm. next time. Right. And that, that is what you are building because 
they don't have what you have, which is the commitment to community. Like that's mm -hmm. everything. Your authentic, like the authenticity by with which you created this company and the the meaning of it, the the you know, the content you're committed to that we don't get to see even on other black content, you know, platforms that that will draw people in you've got community and all these other platforms just don't have that so i'm not gonna blow smoke up your butt about what we can do Aww. in hollywood but i am gonna be in touch about what we can do together <laughs> definitely excited the conversation <laughs> me too me too okay um this has been amazing i'm gonna uh, ask you one more question and then we will wrap up so this is our sister brunch uh, question sister brunch came out of the um uh director's guild of America trainee program. So our co-host Anya, um, she was in the trainee program and then the women of color would get together on the weekends and have a brunch to be able to talk about all the things that they were experiencing while they were in the trainee program or on sets. And that was a place where they could be comfortable. So that's why we call it sister brunch, you know, and, and then she started having sister brunches and, and brought me to one. And I was like, wait a minute, all these amazing women that y'all are telling me you can't find a hire. That's why we created it. So you are sitting down to a sister brunch with a young version of Deshauna. And we want to know, what are you eating together? What are you drinking together? And then what advice are you giving her? A young Deshauna, being from Memphis, either I would have been eating a hot dog, unfortunately, <laughs> chili cheese and coleslaw. That's the way we eat it in Memphis. It is Tastes horrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I grew up. Or barbecue. I mean, like, I, I just eat my fair share of barbecue sandwiches. Yes. What would we be drinking? I started drinking soda, like, a long time ago. Like, as a, as a kid, I started drinking soda. So I probably just, just been drinking water, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. And what would, I, what would I tell my little, my younger self? Yes. What would we be talking about? Uh, I, would, I would actually tell my younger self, like, you got this. You know, don't worry about the future. As a kid, I was always so worried about where I would be in life, I held really low self-esteem. I had like a bit of a stuttering thing. And even though I would love to read, you know, I would, you know, get myself together and make sure. Um, and I always felt that maybe I wouldn't be as successful. A lot of people didn't see potential in me. Mm. And I, I felt so hard to like prove people wrong. And so I had a huge chip on my shoulder growing up. And I would just tell her, girl, why are you worried? You know, you, you have no idea, <laughs> you know, worry the places you're going to go, the things you're going to do in life. You, you got this. You have nothing to worry about. I would just and give her a real big hug and say, you're beautiful. Because I didn't think I was beautiful either, you know. Thank you so much, Deshauna. This has been incredible, inspiring, educational. Support the platform. Um, and yeah, we're so glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. This has been a, really, a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Sister Brunch. We're the podcast that brings you the stories of Black women and gender expansive people breaking barriers and bringing joy to the entertainment and media industries. This is our fourth season of Sister Brunch. You can read the transcript of this show and listen to all of our previous episodes at sisterbrunch.com. As always, thank you so much for your support. And please remember to subscribe to the podcast. That's one way you can support us. 
you can uh, leave a review. We always appreciate that. You can share it with your friends and family. And you can also follow and interact with us on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. And you can always listen to Sister Brunch on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sister Brunch is brought to you by Trujillo Productions. Our senior producer is Natalie Narcis. Our producer is Brittany Turner. Our executive producers are Christabel Nsiabwadi and Anya Adams. Our associate producers are Farida Abdul-Wahab and Mimi Slater. We acknowledge that the land we record our podcast on is the original land of the Tongva and Chumash people. See you all next time. Until then, take good care.